All right. Good morning, guys. Good morning. It's great to be with you guys. Um, well, like uh, Andy said earlier, Adam is uh, blessing another church in our New Thing Network with uh, a sermon and message there this morning, and so um, I'm grateful that he gave me the opportunity to uh, share with you guys from the scriptures today. Um, I love getting to do this. I love to, to teach from the Word. Um, I'm passionate about it, and I don't get to do it super often like this, so um, I'm grateful to be with you guys this morning. Um, so we're in this series called uh, Paradox, and we're exploring ways in which there's some tension in some of the things we believe as followers of Jesus. And often we find that in the end, they're kind of two sides of the same coin, but they're a little bit different. There are two different things that don't seem to go together, uh, especially when we just kind of look at it from, from uh, a long ways away. And today, we're going to talk about the concept of power in weakness. Power in weakness. And that in and of itself seems contradictory, doesn't it? Power and weakness seems like, like you just said two different things. Like, what, what do you mean by that? Um, but what we're going to explore today is how power and weakness is actually a really important part of the kingdom of God. It is a part of God's character. It is how his kingdom works. And to approach power and authority in a way that doesn't line up with the kingdom of God can be really challenging. And we might end up looking like one of these guys right here. So we don't want to go the wrong way in traffic. <laughs> we want to go with the flow of traffic in the kingdom of God. We want to go with the grain. We want to live in a way that is in line with how God is in his character and how he has set up his kingdom to work. We want to go with the flow of traffic. So that's why we're talking about power and weakness today. I believe it's really important. And uh, the way that we tend to approach power and authority in the world is very different from the alternative offered in the biblical story. Uh, the biblical story, and especially Jesus, offers us a different way to approach and think about power and authority and weakness. So uh, we're gonna do uh, kind of a little uh, flash round here, three quick examples of power and weakness that I think we often just overlook because we're so familiar with them. Um, and it's three people in the Old Testament that God chose and the first one is Abraham. Let's think about this for just a second. If you're going to start a nation, and from that is, is going to be the father of many nations, you probably want maybe a young guy who's already married, maybe has a couple of kids. 
You might choose a guy who's maybe 40 or 50 and already has nine kids. But you want someone who's you know, got a family. They've already got something started if you're gonna build a nation from this guy, right? You're probably not gonna choose a 75-year-old nomad who has no kids and a barren wife. Right? <laughs> but that's exactly what God does. It's exactly who he chose. He looks at everyone, he says, I want that guy. It doesn't make sense to us. But what we see in God's choosing of Abraham is that God rules and moves through weakness. Let's talk about Moses. If you're gonna pick someone out to lead an entire people group out of slavery from the oppression of one of the most powerful people in the world at the time, you probably want someone with charisma, someone with confidence, someone with leadership abilities, someone who's a kind of a in-your-face kind of guy, strong personality, but you sure wouldn't pick Moses. Soft-spoken, no confidence, major trust issues, says, hey, can my brother come with me because I'm too scared to do it on my own. Not the obvious pick, but that's the guy that God chose because God rules and moves through weakness. One more quick example. Let's look at David. If you're wanting to choose a king, you probably want someone who's well-known in the community, already has all the political connections, took all the government classes in school growing up, and he's spending time around the palace, you know, maybe, maybe strong, good jawline, you know, just the kind of guy that's like, yeah, that looks like a king. He looks like he's a leader. You wouldn't pick a guy who smells like sheep poop, smells, smells terrible, spends all his time in the fields, the youngest of eight, and is forgettable even to his own family when a prophet shows up, hey, one of your, one of your kids is gonna be king, and they don't even think to call David in. Not the obvious pick. So the heroes that we kind of venerate and look up to in the Old Testament, they're like, they're the nobodies until God chooses him because he rules and moves through weakness. So we're gonna dive into uh, three different spots in scripture with a little more depth. Uh, and we're gonna start with Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 is a psalm that uh, for a long time frustrated me because there's a couple of lines in there that I could not make heads or tails of. No matter how many times I read it, how, many, how, many, how much time I spent with it, it just didn't make a lot of sense to me. It didn't click. And it talks about uh, God using the cries of babies to build a fortress. And I was like, this is nonsense. This doesn't make any sense. Um, and so we're going to get some help uh, from the Bible Project here. We're gonna watch a quick video. Uh, if you don't know the Bible Project, it is a free resource online uh, put together by an incredible Bible scholar, and they do little uh, summaries and overviews of all the biblical books. So if you don't use those, they're just a couple minutes long. I would highly recommend watching those when you study your Bibles because they are a huge help to me, and I know they will be to you as well. So some of the text in this video is gonna be a little small on the screens, but they say everything uh, as it comes up. So don't worry too much about that. Just listen, and they're gonna help, uh, help us set up Psalm 8. Check this out. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
These are the opening words from Psalm 8 in the Bible. It's a beautiful poem about how the creator God rules the world through babbling babies. Huh? Babbling babies? Yeah, this is really cool. Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the land. You have set your splendor above the skies. So Yahweh is the king of creation, and you can see his royal power on display everywhere. Now that first line is repeated again at the end of Psalm 8. Right, that's called an inclusio. It's a signal to the reader of what the poem is all about, God's majestic power that fills all of creation. But David and the afflicted ones aren't experiencing God's power at the moment. Right, this is what the rest of the poem is all about. There are two parallel sections. And in the first, we're introduced to a weak little creature, a bunch of babbling babies. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold because of your adversaries to stop the enemy and the avenger. Now, the Hebrew word for stronghold is oz, which can mean strength or also a strong place, like a fortress or a refuge. God's gonna build a fortress out of baby babble? To stop violent enemies? Yeah, it's like a riddle that is going to be unpacked by the next matching part of the poem. When I consider your skies, the moon and the stars which you have established, what is human that you remember him and the son of humanity that you attend to him? So the poet's here reflecting on the creation narrative of Genesis chapter one, where there's this contrast. God installs the heavenly lights above in all their splendor, and then below he forms the humans out of dirt. Up there are shiny bodies that move around. I think of these as flaming gas balls. But when the biblical authors looked up, the stars gave them a way to talk and think about spiritual beings. Yeah, I get this, looking up at the night sky, feeling so small and insignificant. Why are humans so important to God? And so the poet continues. You made humanity a little lesser than spiritual beings, yet you crown them with glory and majesty. In Genesis, God elevates the weak little dirt creatures for this majestic task, to be his image who will rule over all creation. The poet can hardly believe it. You made them rulers over the work of your hands. You put everything under their feet. So both parts of this poem are about how God loves to elevate the powerless so he can rule the world through them. Whether babbling babies or lowly humans, God loves to choose the weak. Okay, there we go. Let's dive into this a little bit more. Um, like I said, this is uh, the, the poem of Psalm 8. It's kind of like a riddle, and it's an invitation for us to think on the riddle and ultimately figure out what it's talking about. And uh, the whole thing, it's, it's a meditation on Genesis 1, page 1 of the Bible. And there's really two sections there uh, in Genesis 1 that uh, Psalm 8 highlights that is going to become really important for us. So the first part of, of the creation story in Genesis 1 is day four. Day four. And on day four, God created the sun, moon, and stars, right? And uh, I think we've all experienced this uh, before when we were, we're outside, maybe in a more remote location at night, and uh, maybe it's a really clear night, and you look up at the stars, and you just kind of get this sense of awe, some wonder, and some, wow, I am really, really, really small. You guys know what I'm talking about? Have you felt that before? Yeah, yeah. It's just the sense of, wow, I, this, this God's creation is huge. I'm just one, one little piece. Um, 
So the, the ancient world, they felt that too. Uh, the writers of, of scripture, they had those same moments, those same encounters. But in addition to that, um, as, as we saw in the video, uh, the sun, moon, and stars also gave the ancient world a way in which to talk and think about the spiritual realm, about spiritual beings. Think about it. If you're an ancient person, you don't know that you, these are, you know, balls of rock that are in orbit due to gravitational pull. You don't know that the stars are flaming gas balls. All you know is you look up and it's like, huh, those things move. And they're twinkling. Like, I wonder if they're alive. They're surely like existing in a whole nother realm that I could never exist in, in ways I could never exist. They're certainly far away and magnificent, beautiful. And so it gave them a way to talk about spiritual beings. Uh, one quick example of this is found in the book of Job, chapter 38, uh, where God asks Job, he asks him this question, were you there, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So there we have kind of the classic, what's called a parallelism. It's how uh, Hebrew poetry works. It's two ways of saying the same thing and they help interpret each other. And you kind of compare them and contrast them and think about them. Um, a lot of our Old Testament is written in that way. And uh, here, uh, God asks Job this question, and he, he parallels the uh, sun, moon, and stars, uh, the, the morning stars, with these sons of God, which are both very common ways of talking about spiritual beings in the ancient world and in the Bible. We usually call them angels. Um, so, all that to say, in Psalm 8, when, when he's talking about you made, you made humanity a little lower than these, than these heavenly beings and these spiritual beings, um, he's, he's thinking about day four and the sun, moon, and stars, but he's also thinking about this kind of other layer that feels a little less intuitive to us. And, and he, the psalmist finds something incredible in this. He looks at the, the majesty of creation, the vastness of it. He looks at the sun, moon, and stars and what that meant for him in the ancient world. And he says, oh my gosh, you're mindful of me? You think of me? You care for me? He says, that's incredible. But it, be, it becomes even more incredible because the, 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 the psalmist in Psalm 8, he doesn't stop at day four. He goes on to meditate on the image of God being placed on humanity at the very end of Genesis 1. Uh, verse 27 and 28 read like this of Genesis 1. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And it was so. So it's not just that we're tiny, and, and like the video said, kind of these creatures that in Genesis 1 came from the dirt. That's how they understood, um, kind of, it's, it's like from the dust you came, from the dust you will return, like we're mortal, right? Uh, but in addition, it's this, wow, we were chosen to bear the image of God, to be his representatives here on earth. We're wired for this intimate relationship with him in a way that nothing else is. And he chose us to do that. It's like in, in, the psalm, in the psalm, he can hardly even believe it. And so the only, he tries to grasp for 
a way to explain this, a way to describe this, how crazy it is to him. And the only thing he can come up with is the cries of babies building a fortress. It's that level of craziness, that level of weakness turning something into strength. That's the image of God placed on humans in light of the vastness and the majesty of God's creation. He chose us. So for the psalmist, God choosing humans to bear his image and rule his creation is as absurd as building a fortress from the cries of babies. It's power and weakness. See, the psalmist was able to read Genesis 1, the very first page of our Bibles, and he was able to conclude that God rules and moves through weakness. And in that case, that weakness, it's you and me. It's these unlikely candidates, just like Abraham and Moses and David, that get chosen for this grand, majestic role that we didn't deserve on our own. All right, how are you guys doing? All right, awesome. Uh, we're gonna move forward to the life of Paul and look at another place where we see power and weakness. And uh, Paul talks a lot about this in one letter in particular, and that's uh, 2 Corinthians. And he also talks a lot about boasting in that letter. You ever read those chapters in Paul and you're, and you're like, man, what is this guy talking? He's going on and on and on about boasting. Like, what is he, what's his deal? Uh, we're gonna kind of figure out what his deal is. Um, so for starters, I want to read this quote to you uh, from this New Testament scholar, his name is Timothy Savage, and he's talking about uh, the practice of boasting in the Roman Empire. And this is gonna kind of help us get a sense of the passage we're gonna read in Paul. Uh, the quote starts like this. The projection of status in the Roman world was crucial. Most people thought that to be deprived of the chance to display wealth was to be deprived of wealth itself. Competition for honor had important side effects. It encouraged outward expressions of pride and arrogance. For many, boasting itself became an activity worthy of honor. Humility, on the other hand, was scorned. Putting oneself on show was not a ritual reserved only for the elite. It was a passion played out at every level of society, though on lesser scales. In Corinth, perhaps more than anywhere else, those are the people that Paul is writing to in this letter in Corinth, perhaps more than anywhere else, social assent was the goal, boasting and self-display were the means, and personal power and glory were the reward. So I want us to get a little more of a sense of what Paul is dealing with here. See, the practice in the Roman Empire was literally to sit down and think, hmm, what are all the awesome things I've done in my life? Like, why am I the best? And then they go and write all those things down on this piece of paper, on this piece of parchment, and they like over-exaggerate and make it sound even more awesome. It's like every dad who tells a fish story, you know, the fish gets bigger each time, right? It's like that, but with like this huge list of accomplishments. And then what you do is you go into the public marketplace and you perform this. You don't just read it, you perform it. It's like, how awesome can I make myself sound and how like, like over-exaggerated can I be in my delivery? I wanna be impressive. This is what people would do in their free time, guys. No joke. And it was, <laughs> it's crazy, right? And it was how you climbed the social ladder. It was how you gained status and reputation. 
And so in 2 Corinthians chapter three, Paul is responding to a question from the Corinthians. And they're like, hey, Paul, can you give us uh, a letter of recommendation? Can you tell us all the great things you've done? Because uh, your delivery isn't too impressive and everyone else, all the other church planner people, they're taking money because they know they're great, but you never accept money. And uh, you kind of get beat up a lot and you don't look too hot anymore because you've gone through a lot. Like, we know that you founded our church, but like, remind us why we should uh, take you back when you come back to us, basically. Like, give us some boasting, Paul. Give, give us your list of achievements. And here's the thing. We know that Paul's not a boaster. He's not gonna boast. He's humble. He's meek. He, he knows the character of Jesus. He's a follower of Jesus. He's not gonna go around boasting. But he says, I too will boast. So we're like, okay. And you know, the, the Corinthians, they received this letter and they're probably like, all right, here we go. We're getting what we wanted. But what they don't know is that Paul set a little trap for them. He's not gonna give them what they wanted. Paul goes on to say this after he says, I too will boast. He says this in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 21 through 33. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, and then he stops himself and says, I'm speaking like a fool, you guys. And he says, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they Christ's service? Servants, and then he stops himself again. He says, I'm out of my mind to talk like this. And then he picks back up, I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rod. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? and I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weaknesses. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. And he adds this at the end. In Damascus, the governor under King Eratos had the city of Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands." Do you see what Paul did there? The Corinthians are like, hey, Paul, give us your list of accomplishments. Give us all the good stuff you've done. Boast for us. Remind us why you're so great. Remind us why we should be proud that you were the guy that founded our church, that, that led us to the Lord in the first place. And he goes, okay, here you go. And he gives them that. It's the exact opposite of what they were hoping for. And it was the exact opposite of how you gained status and receive power in the Roman world. He's like, all right, you want me to boast? I'm gonna boast in all the things that are gonna just embarrass the snot out of you. Like, you're not gonna like this one bit. This is gonna be awful for you guys. And he's like, that's okay, but you want me to boast? I'll boast in this. And he actually tops it off with something pretty cool. Um, 
So in the Roman military, there was an award. And this was the, uh, actually the most honoring reward you could receive. And it was called the wall crown. And when uh, the Roman army would siege a city, the first guy to get over the wall would win this wall crown. And this was often over a year-long process to siege a city. So it was a big deal. Finally, someone made it over the wall. We're on even, we have, we have level ground now. They don't have the high ground anymore. And that would go on the top of someone's boasting list. Paul ends his reverse boasting list with a reverse wall crown. Instead of being the first to scale a wall in battle, he highlights the fact that he got in a little basket and ran away and was lowered over a wall onto the outside. So it's just like layer after layer after layer of basically poking fun at what the Corinthians are asking him to do. It's like, hey guys, this isn't how we do things. This, this grabbing for power that you guys are doing, this struggling to ascend the social ladder, that's not how we do things in the kingdom of God. And here's his conclusion. Uh, in chapter 12, very next chapter from what we just read, Paul concludes, um, and this first part is, is the Lord talking. Uh, God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, what Paul understands as he's reading Psalm 8, as he's reading Genesis 1, say it with me, he understands that God rules and moves through weakness. That's what he understands. And he understands that to try to do all this grasping for power and to just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and I'm gonna write down all these incredible things I've done and go convince you that I'm the best and that I have a lot of power and I should be considered honorable by you. That there's something about that that doesn't quite fit in the way the kingdom works. That's like driving against traffic. Okay? One more spot we're gonna dive into here. We're gonna dive into the life of Jesus. And there's actually several spots we could look at. We could look at when he says, hey, let the little children come to me. The ones who have nothing to boast about, who are at the bottom of the social ladder. The disciples try to shoo him away to protect Jesus' reputation. And he says, no, bring him here. We could look at when Jesus says, uh, the first will be last and the last will be first. That's, that's a little bit of a mind bender, right? We could look at that. But we're actually gonna look at the last week of Jesus' life as he rides in to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and ultimately to be the Passover lamb, knowing he's gonna be sacrificed. But the disciples, and we've talked about this before in our teaching, the disciples and the Israelites that are celebrating him, they don't, they're not celebrating him because he's gonna be crucified. They're celebrating him because they think that Jesus is gonna be king, right? They're expecting something militant. They're expecting an overthrow of Rome. Oh, the king is here? He's from the line of David? He's coming to Jerusalem? Great, let's get him a throne. 
Let's, let's rid ourselves of these Romans who are keeping us from, from following the Lord the way that we want to, the way that we're called to. And they sing the song as Jesus rides in on a donkey into Jerusalem. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They're like, great, David 2.0. Let's go. Let's get back to having our own king, right? Uh, the same passage in John Chapter 12, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. They're like, great, let's get this guy a throne. He's the new king. Let's get this started. And Jesus actually says a couple of things that almost align with that, it seems. Uh, Jesus talks about being exalted and glorified in John 12, the very same chapter, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's like, Jesus, are you, you, know, are you thinking the same thing? Are you gonna get a throne? You wanna you know, kind of have this glorious position and, and lead a glorious revolution? Jesus has something else in mind. He has something else in mind. When he says that, and he says something similar in uh, the very next chapter in John 13, he says, now the Son of Man, uh, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And then in John 17, he says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And Jesus does get glorified but it's not in the way that anyone else other than him anticipated. He's given a crown, but it's not the crown anyone anticipated. It's a crown of thorns, right? He's given a royal robe, a purple robe, but it's soaked in his own blood. He's given a plaque that says, this is the king of the Jews in three different languages. But what's that plaque nailed to? cross the cross see the cross is Jesus throne the people came in received him in expecting to enthrone a king and ironically that's exactly what they do Jesus with a crown with a royal robe with a proclamation that he is king is lifted up exalted onto a cross. Uh, there's a New Testament scholar, Merrill Tenney, says this about this exact thing. Paradoxically, and I didn't pay him to use the word of our series, he just said it. Paradoxically, the hour of his greatest humiliation would be the hour of his supreme glory. See, for Jesus, his ultimate display of weakness was his ultimate Enthronement, his ultimate display of power, his ultimate glorification. Because when he was saying those lines, now is the time for the Son of Man to be exalted, he wasn't talking about a throne like everyone else was talking about it. His exaltation was the cross. And that is how Jesus proved strong, isn't it? That's how he overcame, isn't it? And so if that's how Jesus overcame, and 
Uh, that's, that's what Paul was boasting in. He's b- boasting in his weakness. And the psalmist in Psalm 8 was celebrating weakness in God choosing humans to be his representatives. And we see weakness all over the lives of the people in the Old Testament that are these heroes. These guys that were like, oh yeah, they're the best. Weak, not qualified. If this is the story of the Bible, what does this mean for us? How do we approach power? How do we approach authority? And how do we approach weakness? Let's talk about it. How to be weak. For starters, we need to be willing to embrace our weaknesses. And for a lot of us, that starts with just acknowledging that they're there. I know it can be hard, and I know this is hard for me sometimes to admit that, ah, I need help. I don't have it all together. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about. So there's a few ways that we can kind of help ourselves do this, just some little steps. First one is simply pray. See, in prayer, there's something at the heart of prayer that is humbling, isn't there? Because when we pray, when we bring things to God, what are we saying? We're saying, I can't do this on my own. I am not capable. I am too weak to do this on my own. And so I'm coming to someone who can someone who is able to help, someone who is powerful enough to step in and change things that I could never change. So we can practice prayer. And naturally, that will breed in us a default position of humility and a position where we're okay saying, I can't do it on my own. Okay, and the second thing we can do is practice gratitude. When God does move, when he does answer prayer, so often we're just like, oh, sweet, great. And we just go on living life like it was, like we were owed it. Like that was what was supposed to happen. Instead of really stopping for a moment, saying, wow, thank you, Father. You heard me, you listened to me, and then you moved. Because you see me. And you did something that I could never do. Practice gratitude. And then like I started to mention a minute ago. Ask for help from people in your life. I'm not talking big, crazy stuff. I'm just talking little things, day-to-day life. We all have people in our lives that are really good at things that we suck at, right? People that's like, oh man, if only this person was here, they could really, you know, they would know exactly what to do here. Be willing to ask for help. Because guess what? We're not self-sufficient. We don't have it all together. And I think admitting that in day-to-day life is really, really important because if we we're not willing to admit that in day-to-day life with our friends and our family, it's gonna be really hard for us to admit that in our spiritual life, in our relationship with God, isn't it? And spiritual self-sufficiency is a really scary thing because it essentially undermines the gospel, doesn't it? What did Jesus say? I didn't come for the people who think they're too good to need help. I came for the people who know they're, they need help. They know they're separated from their creator and they know they can't do one thing about it. We're not spiritually self-sufficient 
we are spiritually in desperate need of rescue. So we embrace our weaknesses. But the statement doesn't end there, does it? Power in weakness. So we're not just called to, you know, be crybabies, weaklings. Oh, I can't do anything. No, there's, somehow there's power in this weakness. And we see that, again, right, all throughout the biblical story. So how to be strong. How to be strong. We need to invite God to use us in our weaknesses to do things that only he can do. This is something we pray as a worship intact team almost every single week. I mean, think about it. A couple, couple people singing, a couple people strumming some instruments, a couple people hitting, moving slides or moving, moving sound faders in the background. All those little things working together. And people encounter God's spirit in that place. It's a vehicle for God's spirit to move where lives are changed, where formative encounters with God's presence happen. That's absurd to me. That still doesn't, I, that, I can't get over that. That God can use all our little things together for something so incredible, for something so powerful. Invite him to use you in your weaknesses to do things that only he can do. Us singing a song will never change someone's heart. But God can use that song to change someone's heart. God is looking to use people that embrace the fact they can't do anything significant for the kingdom of God apart from him. Uh, Paul says this in Colossians chapter one. He says, to this end... I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Paul says, I work really, 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 really hard by the power of the Spirit in me, knowing that if I do it on my own, I'm not gonna accomplish one thing of significance for the kingdom of God. I can't. See, hard work by itself will get us a lot of places. We know that, we celebrate that as Americans. Hard work will get you a lot of places, but by itself, it will get you nowhere in the kingdom of God. Hard work by itself, determination by itself will get you nowhere in the kingdom of God. But hard work empowered by the Spirit, knowing we won't accomplish anything of kingdom value without him, there is power and weakness. Going back to our example from Paul, Paul worked hard, but he knew he was weak. He boasted about it. He made a big old list of all the ways he was weak. But he knew God was strong. And because he worked hard from his weakness, knowing that God could use his weakness and his little offerings, he accomplished great things for the kingdom, didn't he? Great things. So I think there's an invitation for us there today. To know 
that God is strong and able, but he's looking to use people that know that they're not. He's looking to use people that know that they can't accomplish anything of significance for his kingdom, of eternal value, apart from him. And that starts by just expressing, I am in desperate need of a relationship with God, of his spirit living in me. And for some of us today, maybe that's the step that you take today. Maybe that's the thing that the Spirit worked in you today, just realizing, man, I am incapable of fixing this on my own. For some of us, maybe it's, it's just acknowledging in the little things in everyday life, just letting go of that little bit of pride and saying, hey, I could use a hand. I'm not quite sure what to do here. For some of us, maybe it's asking and praying through, God, what, what gifts have you given me that aren't a lot? Yeah, they're little. But maybe you could use this for something really impactful. Maybe you could use me and my little, my little thing for something big. So as the band comes up, uh, we prepare our hearts to uh, just respond to the teaching of the word in worship. Let's just take a moment and pray and invite the Spirit just to Speak to us and move how he would. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for its riches, for its depths. And we thank you today just for for speaking to us. We ask that, uh, just as we continue to meditate on your word and on this, this idea, that you would just highlight something for each of us. Father, we thank you that you don't always choose the obvious, strong, easy pick. We thank you that instead you chose us and that you can use whatever it is that we have, no matter how small. And that's actually how your kingdom works. we thank you that we see that in the cross we see that in Jesus and so we can be okay with our own not enoughs our own weaknesses and we can embrace them because that's where you move that's where you accomplish great things pray this in the name of Jesus everybody said All right, let's uh, let's stand and let's worship together.